Welcome to the New Beginning Fellowship Church Sermon Podcast. We are glad you are listening to the teaching of the Word of the Lord. We pray that this message encourages you and builds your faith. We also pray that this message is only supplemental to your spiritual growth instead of being a replacement for daily personal Bible study, the pastor you should be submitted to, or the church God would have you to be an active member of. If you live within driving distance of Brobridge, Louisiana, we hope that you would come to visit us during one of our services on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. Service times, ministry information, and giving options are all located on our website at newbeginningfc.com or on our Facebook page at New Beginning Fellowship Church. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. Praise God. Revelation in chapter 2. Our main focus is going to be on verse 4 and 5, verse 4 and 5, but I want to take just a few minutes to look at chapter 1 because we need to understand the context. There's language here that if you don't know what it means by those euphemisms and symbolisms, then you'll be very confused. And so the book of Revelation is not the book of revelations, right? It's not the plural. It's not many revelations. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a revelation of end time events. All of the events, all of the things that happen in the book of Revelation are about showing Jesus as King, Lord, High Priest, Creator of the heavens and the universe, the one worthy to be worshipped, and how he has come and lived and died and was buried and resurrected and ascended to heaven, and how he is bringing all events in human history to a close so that he can return as king and judge the living and the dead. Amen. That's what the biblical view of these apocalyptic events are about. It's not about the events. The book of Revelation is not to teach you about the Antichrist and the false prophet and judgments and tribulations. All of those are in the context of the person of Jesus. Amen. Tribulations have always been in the world. Trouble is always in the world. The the tribulations are not important. The heart of God is not in heaven going, oh, tribulations and, and events and all of these things. The point is to show Jesus. And all of the warnings we have about tribulations and events are to, to warn us of things that are happening so that we can be faithful to Jesus. Amen? That's the point, that we need to be faithful to Jesus while we wait for him to come because there will be a day that the king will return and the bride needs to be ready and the bride needs to be aching and the bride, the church of Jesus Christ, needs to be yearning saying, come Lord, quickly, return, find us, come and ransom us from the world and take us to be with you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. This is the point of the the book of Revelation. And so it starts off with John having a revelation of Jesus Christ that the church needs to see him in this way. Amen. So Revelation chapter 1 verse 10, John gets through his introductory remarks and telling what's going on. And he says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, 
to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I returned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a fire furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so if you've not read the Bible before, or if if you don't have a lot of ability to connect ideas in one place to another, you may be going, what in the world is going on? What is the point of this revelation of seeing Jesus in this way? Jesus is revealed to John in this way to show all of the unique ways that he is some very specific things to the church. The language that's used here of Jesus, the way that he's dressed, his hair, his feet, his eyes, his face, the the clothes that he wears, all of it are reminiscent of the high priest under the Old Testament. And then the stars in his right hand and the lampstands are significant references to the temple of the Old Testament. And the point is to say that Jesus is our high priest. Amen. Jesus is the priest. And what is the point of this language? The point of this language is to say that he says the stars are the uh, seven where is it? He says the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the churches. And they, most scholars believe that this, these angels or these messengers are the pastors or the leaders of the local churches that are responsible for the churches. And the point is that he has them in his hand. And he says, and the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And one of the responsibilities of the priest in the temple was for him to manage the menorah or the lampstand that was was there that was meant to symbolize the perfect revelation of the word of God. So the tabernacle and the temple were places that had no windows and there was no natural light. And the point of this lampstand was to show that in a dark world, there is a revelation that God has given to teach us his way to say, these are the ways of God. And so the priest responsibility was to tend to the lampstand, to trim the 
wick and to refill the oil. And here we have Jesus presented as the perfect high priest. Notice that he's clothed in the priestly garments. Notice that all of his, these references to him uh, speak of him as the Lamb of God. Remember his head is white like wool. His feet are like burnished bronze. It was bronze that was the, in, the metal of choice for all of the instruments, the knives, the spoons, the ladles, everything that was used, the golden censers that were used to take a coal from the altar and put it on the censer. And then you would put the incense on it and it would create this smoke and this ambience of prayerfulness and this, this picture of prayer and worship in the presence of God filling the temple. And so all of these references are to Jesus being the high priest. His eyes burn like a flame of fire. The, the priest had a discernment. He had the Urim and the Thummim, these two stones that he would keep in his breast pocket. And God would use these stones to make judgments about things for the people of Israel, that they would trust the providence and the leading of God, that as they made these judgments, they would be able to make decisions for the people of God. And the point is that his eyes burn like a fire. It pierces through all of the pretense and the fakeness and the things that we put on to appear one way to the Lord, the point is that he has eyes that sees through all of it. He burns through it all. All the churchianity, all the Christian games, all the things that we play, all the way that we put on one face for you and one face for you and one face for you, he sees us the way that we really are. He knows who we are down to the bones, down to the core. As the word of the Lord says in Hebrews chapter 4, before him all of us are laid bare and naked Before the eyes of the Lord, he sees us as we truly are. And not only is he the priest, but he's the conquering authoritative king that out of his mouth proceeds a sharp two-edged sword by which he judges the nations, the word of the living God. And so here we have Jesus portrayed as mighty and holy and glorious and worthy of praise. And he is the one that finds himself responsible for managing the light in the temple. Now, Jesus says unique things about the people of God. He tells us in Matthew chapter 5 and in Luke uh, chapter 8 that he has made us to be the light of the world. Amen? This is what Jesus says over and over. You are the light of the world. And the purpose of this light is to give revelation to men. Amen? As the As the lampstand in the Old Testament was a symbol of the word of God that was present to bring revelation to the world and teach men. He says, you are the living word. You are the word. You are praise God. Let me make sure I was about to say something. I was like, that's probably not the best way to explain that. Let me not start any heresies on a Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, but you are the instrument by which my word is embodied and lived out in the world. Amen. Paul says that you are the epistles written without words, without stone, without a pen, without paper. Your life ought to be a reflection of the word of God. You ought to be living examples of the word of God. You ought to be walking Bibles. Amen. And so Jesus says that we are the light of the world. We've come to bring this truth into the world. 
Jesus says in Luke chapter 8, verse 16, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to the light. And so Jesus says, You are to be the light of the world, and I'm not making you a light in the world to hide you and cover you, and keep you from shining, and keep people from seeing the light that you have. I'm making you a light in the world so that I can lift you up and exalt you and put you in a place that you can spread that light to expose things the way that they really are. Amen? That's what light does. Light does not put something in a room. All it does is show you the things that are in the room already. Amen? If you were to turn the lights off in here, close all the doors, let it get completely black, you would have no understanding of what is in this room. You wouldn't know how it looks. You wouldn't know how big it is. You wouldn't know anything about what's going on in the room. But when you turn the lights on, it shows things for the way that they really are. And the world is living in darkness and the world is living in darkness and people are in a kingdom of darkness and they don't know God and they don't know the world and they don't understand even their own hearts. And the word of God is meant to be a light to show things the way that they really are, to give light and instruction and truth and revelation. And we are to be instruments in the world through which that light and that revelation is given to men. Amen. We ought to be examples of the truth of God. People ought to be able to look at us and say, I see Jesus. People ought to look at us and say, I see salvation. People ought to look at us and say, I see the way things that God intended for them to be because your life is saved and redeemed and you are an example of how God wants us to live our lives in the world. You are to be people who expose the way that things really are. Amen? And so this is the point of saying that we are lights. Jesus has called us to be lights in this world. And so he says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now look with me at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If Jesus is the high priest who trims the wick and fills the oil, and the churches are the lampstand. They are these specific churches that Jesus calls out. These were seven strategic, important churches that everyone knew of, and he says, I'm using you seven churches as examples of these lampstands that I'm using to bring light into the world. All of you are important and relevant. Your cities know that you're there. Your communities know that you're there. Other churches look to you. Other preachers are influenced by your preaching. Other people are influenced by the way that you are living. You have been given a position of being a light in the world to represent me and to reveal the the kingdom of God and the truth of God the way that things ought to be. And so all of you are these lampstands. These seven churches are these lampstands. Now notice what he says in in Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So imagine with me, there is the high priest, there is the church, and there is Jesus walking in the midst of it. 
seeing its light, seeing the way that it lives, seeing the things that it believes, seeing the things that it teaches, seeing how it treats one another, seeing the way that it views the world, seeing the priorities that are made, seeing the decisions that are made, seeing the prayers, seeing the faith, seeing the way that we treat one another. And Jesus is walking in the midst of the churches and he's looking at the wick and he's looking at the oil. And Jesus says, you're a church. You are one of these seven golden candlesticks. And as you're priest, I've got something to say to you. Amen. That's what he's dealing with. He says, I've got something to say to you. Verse two, he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Jesus begins to evaluate the churches and tell the churches what he thinks about them. Now, if you were to believe a lot of modern preaching, Jesus doesn't think about the church often. And what he does think is very light and very fluffy. It's non-judgmental. It's, it's not piercing. It's very surface level. Jesus thinks the best of you. You're the greatest. You're the coolest. You guys are all amazing. There's nothing bad to say about you. I would never criticize you because the 11th commandment has been given, codified, ratified. It is part of canon now. It belongs in the Bible. Eventually, we will edit to be in the Bible. This is it. Thou shalt be nice, right? And anything that's critical is not nice. Anything that tells you that you're wrong, anything that makes you introspective, anything that makes you think about your life and the way that you live and the way that you treat people and your devotion and commitment to God and whether or not it's right or wrong is not polite. It's not nice. We're easily offended. Don't tell me anything about me. Just pat me on the back and let me go on my merry way. I was watching a a short clip the other day, and I've never seen the show. I don't know anything about it, but I've seen just two or three clips of it. I know it's supposed to be some sort of funny show. And there's a character that's obviously the the, uh, typical character in a TV show that he's supposed to be the the funny dumb one, right? That's typical in TV shows. They have the, the funny dumb one. And he switches jobs. He's doing this thing, whatever it is that he's doing. And he says, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing but I know that I'm doing it really, really well, right? No competence, ultra confident, right? No competence, ultra competent, right? This is someone that should not be making minimum wage at McDonald's and they want $20 an hour and full benefits wherever else they're working, right? They just, no competence, 
ultra confident, right? And that's where the church of Jesus Christ is today. We don't read the Bible. We're not intimate with the Holy Ghost. We have no conviction, no revelation of where we are in the Lord, and we don't know what we're doing. We're just inventing things, creating things, trying to be creative and make church and Jesus and the Christian life, whatever we think that it ought to be. And we're saying, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know that I'm doing it really, really well. And Jesus says, I know the things that you're doing well but I do have something against you. I know that there are things that are not right and I've got to talk to you about it. Notice that these things that they're doing right are not enough, right? That that this is often how we feel because life is hard and balance is hard. Have mercy. Is balance not an important word? I have... Praise God, help me with balance. Try to balance being a husband. Try to balance being a father. Trying to balance being a Christian. Trying to balance having a professional life. Trying to balance being a son and a grandson. Trying to have a balance of of fun with my family and doing other activities and being, you know, just a normal person. Balance. Trying to have balance. And Jesus says, I know balance is hard and I see that you're doing these things well, but there's still something I have against you and you've got to deal with it. Amen? Amen? Because Jesus will give us the grace to change. He's not unfair. He's not mean. He's not unkind. He's not this cruel taskmaster that says, no matter how hard you're trying, I'm still going to be dissatisfied. He says, I will give you grace to live a greater life than what you're living now. I am the high priest that's walking in the midst of the candlesticks. Are you low on oil? I'll give you oil. Are you burned out? I'll trim away the old burned out wick and I'll give you a new one. You've got to come to me. I'll do it in your life, but you can't just keep smoldering and not giving off any light. Amen. That's what Jesus is telling these churches. And so he says to this first church, these positive things, I know your works, your toil, your patience, endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. You're working, you're laboring, you're doing the work of God. You you can't stand those who talk about the Lord, but they're not living right. You are not okay with those who claim to have authority and are apostles, but they're not not really, and they're not teaching the word of God. You've tested them. Those are good things. Verse three, I know that you are patiently enduring. Lord have mercy, right? Don't we wish that could be said of us? You are patient. Well, that's like, like number two of the greatest Christian virtues, right? That patience, praise God for patience, right? How many of you have ever told somebody you were praying for patience and some older seasoned Christian says, no, don't do that, right? Because you want patience. Tribulation works patience. So when you say, give me patience, you're like, Lord, could you make it a little harder? Could you just, could you just add some obstacles and some mountains and deep valleys? And could you make sure that that valley is muddy and hard to walk through and lots of thorns? Cause I would like to have some patience. And so he says, you are patiently enduring. You are bearing up. Life is hard. Being a Christian is hard. The world is against you. It hates you and you are suffering to live a godly life. That is wonderful. And then he says also in verse 6, he says, I know this also, he says, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which we won't go into detail about all that, and there's not much detail to go in anyway, but the point is there are this group of people who claim to be a Christians, and yet they live a very ungodly life that these people are grieved over. And he says those are all good things. 
You've got doctrinal truth. You've got discernment. You are busy. You are doing the work of the Lord. And you are enduring suffering and temptation. Wonderful things. Good things. But. Verse 4. But. Those are not excuses. It's not enough. There is an important critical element to the Christian life that you once had and you don't have it anymore. And probably what you had at first that you don't have anymore, that was probably the drive and the motive and the impetus to become all of these other things that you have. It drove you to be discerning. It drove you to know truth. It drove you to have discernment. It drove you to endure and not give up quickly. It drove you to live a consecrated Christian life. It drove you to mature and to do the work of the Lord. All of those things are good. But I have this against you that you have abandoned or forsaken. You have walked away. You have rejected the love you had at first. There was a love. There was a passion. There was an affection that you had that you used to have and you don't have it anymore. Maybe it's still there, but it is not the way that it once was. Notice that he says, remember Therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And so the idea seems to be that you're you're still doing works. You still have this love, but it's just grown cold. There was a, a fire. There was a passion. There was a zeal. There was a love that you had that you don't have anymore. Now, if you read commentaries on this, it will split hairs and argue and look at every minute detail and try to figure out, is this a love for God? Is this a love for other Christian brothers and sisters? Is this a love for humanity as a whole? As if we could divide it in such a way. As if we could divide it in such a way. If God has poured out in your heart the love of God, if the sacrificial, committed, forgiving, and sacrificing love of God has been poured into your heart, then that love will be reciprocated back to God. And that love has to be given to your brother because Paul, John says in first John, he says, if you say that you love God whom you have not seen, but you don't love your brother whom you have seen, you are a liar. If the real love of God is in you, you will love your brother. And if that same love that is in you that drove the father to say, I will give my son so that you can be saved, then that same love will constrain me not to just love God and to love my Christian brother, but to love the world. For God so loved the world. And so this love is, first of all, a love for God. There was a passion. There was a zeal. There was a drive to love me, to know me, to walk with me. You cared so deeply about God. You cared so deeply about the things of God. You loved me and you were devoted to me. Your worship was full of love. Your prayers were full of love. You didn't just pray because you had a grocery list of things to do. You didn't just pray because you had anxieties that you needed me to take care of. You didn't just pray because you felt guilty if you weren't a good enough Christian to pray. You prayed because you loved. When you got in the Bible, you were there looking for me. You weren't just looking for principles and ideas that could tell you how to manage your finances, that could tell you how to have dif- how to handle difficult relationships. 
You weren't just reading the Bible so that you could know how to sing the right way or what doctrine you could get out of the Word of God. You went to the Bible because you wanted me and you loved me and you forgave those that sinned against you because you loved me and you served me and did the work of God because you loved me and you gave to the work of God because you loved me and every sacrifice that you made and every work that you did was driven, compelled, strengthened and enforced by an intense love. And everything that you did was built out of that love. The love that you had at first, that honeymoon love, that puppy love, that love that just says, this is so wonderful and so new and so glorious. I just can't help but be wrapped up in it. And I've got to give it everything that I have. He says, you had that love and you abandon it. Somewhere along the way, it just became too inconvenient. Somewhere along the way, you stopped tending the fire. Somewhere along the way, the passion slipped off. Somewhere along the way, you saw Jesus enough to know what he looked like, enough to know his truth, enough to know his righteousness, enough to say, here is a picture of Jesus, but it became carved in stone and it was no longer living. And you are no longer in love. Sure, you're holding to the right one so that you're not compromised, but you don't love him. He could walk down the street and maybe you would recognize him, but your heart wouldn't skip a beat anymore. You had this love. As a church, together, as a body, it flowed from the Father into you and into one another, and it spilled out into the streets. You had this love but you've abandoned it. Jesus has come to the church that is the light of the world. He's come to the church and said, I've given you to shine. I am the one who stands in the midst of the candlesticks and I'm coming to evaluate your life and I'm telling you the wick of your life has been burned up and there's no fresh love left in it. And you're not shining anymore. You're not filling the room with light and revelation. You're not turning the hearts of men to God. You're not exposing sin by the way that you live. You're not teaching men what it means to have the joy of the Lord. You are no longer a representation of me. Your heart is cold and dead. What does he say in verse 5? What is the instruction and what is the remedy? Understanding the remedy and the instructions that he has for what to do with this cold heart is what helps us to understand really the condition of these people. He says, verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. There are those who would say, well, if they've fallen from it, they never really had it. Jesus says there was something real. There was something genuine. It was so glorious that it's exactly what I wanted for you and it's what I want for you today and you had it and you abandon it and I want you to remember it I want you to think of back I want you to think back to those early days think of that passion think of that love think of that zeal and if you're here tonight and you say there's nothing to look back to I've never had it then I say you need to examine yourself to see where you are with Jesus because if you don't have it now and you can't remember a time where you had it before maybe you've never seen him because to see him is to love him 
Amen? To know him is to love him. If you know Jesus, all the commands in the world cannot make a man love God. But when he sees him in his glory and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness, you can't help but love him. You can't help but have your heart stirred to a passion for Christ. But he says there are those that you had it and your heart was filled with it. And remember it and think about that day. Don't just reminisce and tell people how it used to be when you used to love God and when you used to be devoted to God and how radical you were and how anything that he wanted you would do. That is not something that you get to say, it was once really amazing, but this is how things ought to be now. I remember being so on fire for the Lord when I first got saved and people would say, it's all right, he'll calm down. It'll die out. It'll go away. Don't worry about it. And my prayer was calm. Constantly, Lord, I don't want it to go away. I don't want to stop praying things like, Lord, whatever you want for my life, I'm willing to do it. Whatever it costs me, I will do it. I want to be so in love with you that no matter what it is that I can say to you, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I can tell you I've not followed the Lord because I'm a good man. I'm a very selfish, immature, terrible man outside of the grace of God. But everything the Lord has ever called me to do has been to go through a cross, to be buried, and to come out on the other side resurrected to die to myself if you know what it is to live that christian life you know what that is and it is not enough to follow him in obedience just out of duty and obligation because you have to do it there must be a love in days where i was not of enough of a christian man to do it out of duty i did it because my savior loved me and he poured his love into my heart amen and so jesus we're all to be praying to him lord don't let my love grow cold That love that I had at first, don't let me abandon it. He says, you had this love, but remember from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like when the Lord was so precious to you that any word from him was precious. Amen. Do you know that there are many people in the word of the Lord that God spoke things to them that they did not want to hear? Jonah right? How many of us pray, Lord, speak to me, right? At the end of this passage, it says in verse seven, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The spirit is speaking. He's given discernment. He's dealing with our hearts. He's showing us the truths of God. He's ministering to us. And as Christians, we ought to learn to say, Lord, speak Jesus, you said that your sheep know your voice. Speak. I want to hear from you. But sometimes the Lord says things that we don't like to hear. Right? The disciples had given everything to follow Jesus. And then Jesus says, if you want to follow me, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they say, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? And Jesus says, will you leave too? Are you going to abandon me too? And they said, this is a hard word. But where else can we go? Who else can we go to? We love you. You have set our hearts on fire. We can't go anywhere else than where you are. Oh, that's the key. That's the key to love the Lord so much that whatever he says to you, you're willing to hear it. Amen. That was my prayer. I know you're tired of, of hearing that. It's constantly my reference point, but to me it's personal. And that's what, it, what, it, what I think of when I think of this, that when I got saved, I was so in love with the Lord. I said, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And really the thought in my mind was if you want me to go to Africa and be poor and, and serve you as a missionary or, or die on the mission field, I'll do it. Call me, tell me whatever you want me to do. A blank check with my life. 
And then I said, but don't ask me to be a preacher. And then said, well, if you want me to, I will, but please don't ask me. And then over six months, the Lord spoke to me. It felt like every day spoke to me, ministered to me. And then the Lord began to draw me into the ministry to deal with my heart. And I didn't like that word. And every other word I was able to rejoice in and celebrate and go, yay, God loves me. God's speaking to me. I'm his kid. I'm his sheep. I'm hearing what the Spirit's speaking in the churches. You're dealing with my heart. You're showing me things in the word. And then he began to show me that. And I said, but I don't want to hear that. And I don't like that. And I don't want to go that way. And I don't want to do that thing. I'll die. Kill me. But don't ask me to do that. Right? I I have proved it. I've been in India. And I've seen seven Muslim men standing in the back row while we were preaching. And Pastor Blessing told us, these men don't like what we're saying. And they may kill us. And I had to get up in front of them and tell them that if you're worshiping idols or living in sin and you don't know God, then you're going to be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you must repent and be saved. Amen? I'll die but don't ask me to preach. But he called me to preach. And I had to say, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do it, not because I'm a good servant, but because you are a worthy master. And he says, remember that. And there have been so many times that I've gone and said, Lord, if that's the way that I loved you then, if I'm not loving you that way now, then something's wrong with me because you haven't changed. And he says, go back and reminisce and think of that moment. Return to the love that you had at first. Think of that love. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Turn from it. If you don't love the Lord, there's a need for repentance. There's a need to turn from that lack of love. There's something to say, Lord, this is not acceptable to you. This is wrong. And I've got to move away from it and turn away from it and say, Lord, you've got to help me to change. And notice that he says, and do the works that you did at first. Because to be in love with Jesus is not to just say, you know, when we sing the right song and Brother Renee sings it just the way that I like and we have that bass drop moment, mighty you are, and then it comes back, oh, and it moves me and I have this emotional feeling that that is enough. Love constrains you to live in a different way. And he says, when you had that first love, there was a work that you did. There was a way that you lived and that they were together. You could not separate them. You did the works, but you loved him. And because you loved him, you did the works. And now that your heart has grown cold, you are not doing those works anymore. And that's the point. The point is not that Jesus is trying to just get us to do the works. The point is we can't just say, oh, I've become emotional about Jesus again, but the way that I live hasn't changed. If you have the love of the Lord in your heart, you will do what that love constrains you to do. And the way that you know that you've lost the love is because there are ways that you were living because you loved the Lord that you are not living that way anymore. There was a simplicity to it. Love is simple. And love simplifies everything. Love makes everything so simple. Sin is a very complicated thing, and the fallen world is a very complicated thing. And if you don't believe it, listen to every political conversation, every social conversation that happens in the world, and we're trying to figure out what to do about hunger, what to do about uh, the the 
climate, what to do about political issues, what to do about gun violence, what to do about all of the things that are going on in this world. And we're all trying to figure out what to do. And you know what God did? God saw it all. He said, I love it. In spite of its sin. And what became very simple is, I'll send my son to die. It cut through all of the complications, all of the difficulty, all of the millions of strands of what about this and what about that. And it just simplified it down to this. I love, therefore I will bear the brunt of the consequences of their sin and I will die in their place. Love simplifies it all. I'll never forget Four or five years ago, there was a person that I was dealing with that was very difficult. They had gotten so in my head. They had me so conflicted, so confused, so overwhelmed, so terrified, so manipulated, so fearful, so worried that I couldn't stand it. I thought about them every morning while I'm getting dressed in, and every morning while I'm fixing my hair and and brushing my teeth, I'm having arguments in the mirror, trying to figure out how to have a conversation with them to resolve the issue. And I'm praying and asking, Lord, show me what to do. Show me what to do. I'm scheming and planning and all of these complicated things trying to figure out the right way to handle the situation. And one morning I'm praying, racking my brain and the Lord didn't give me a single answer but he filled my heart with love for that person and it became so simple what I needed to do that if I loved them, I was gonna do this. Love simplifies it all. And he says, you've lost your first love, you've walked away from it. Repent, have that love again, and do what you did at the first. Just live for him. When you were in love with Jesus, it was so simple. You didn't have to figure out, well, how many times did we go to church this week? We've only gone, or this month, we've only gone once, so we need to go at least one more so that we've gone at least two times in this month. Or, or maybe if you're really devoted to the Lord, three times this month. It didn't say, well, how many times have I read my Bible? I've read it twice this week. If I, if I really love the Lord, I'm going to read it some more. Or maybe I'll catch up on extra chapters so that I can really know that I love him. It, 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 this, this doesn't say, oh, I want to serve the Lord, so have I prayed enough today? Love says, I love him. I've got to get in the word. I've got to read the word. I've got to go find him there. I love the Lord. I've got to go find him in the closet go pray and talk to him. I love the Lord. Can I help my neighbor? I see a man who's beat up and in a ditch and he's robbed and poor and he's near to death. Can I go to him in the love of the Lord? And can I pour oil and wine on his bruises and on his cuts? Can I throw him over my donkey? Can I carry him into town and put him in the inn and give the money to the innkeeper and say, whatever else that you use, whatever else that you do, whatever expenses are built up, taking care of him, when I come back, I'll pay that too. It's just simple. If I love him, it will change the way that I live. And if I'm out of love with him, my Christian life becomes very complicated. It becomes a game of chess of trying to do enough things to ease our conscience, but not because we love the Lord, but because we're trying to keep up in appearance. And he says, the one who have the eyes that are like fire, the one who really sees the oil, the one who really sees the wick, the one, the high priest who comes and walks in the midst of the churches, he says, I see the love that you used to have, and it's gone. Repent and have the love that you had at first. And do the works that you did at the first. 
go back to that life of love and sacrifice and living for the Lord. It just gets simple. Amen. It just gets simple. Love the Lord and live like you love him. And I can tell you this, if, if you just try to get an emotional high and you don't change the way that you're living in a few days or a few weeks, that emotional high will leave. You know what we call that? We call that the, the youth camp emotional high right? How many Christian kids, we send them off to youth camp. We hype them up about Jesus. We get them super excited. We get them emotional crying in the altar. They say their life has changed forever. And then they go back home and they get busy with sports and they get busy with girlfriends and they get busy with talking and they get busy with texting and Instagram and all of life. And they're just as dead as before they left because it was most of the time just an emotion. But he says, if you repent and you go to the love you had at first, it will make it all so simple and you'll begin to live in a different kind of way. Can a man really love his wife? Lose that passion and that love? Grow cold? Stop texting? Stop bringing her flowers? Stop trying to come home as soon as he can to talk to her? Stop having romantic conversations? Stop taking her on dates? Stop showing her affection? Stop holding her hands? And then realize, I'm wrong. I need to repent and and get this right with my wife and go, I want to love you like I did it first and then completely not change the way that he treats her. I've returned to my first love, but she would never know it because I'm not behaving any differently. He says, you want to love the Lord again, love him with all of your heart and return to the works that you did at first. Let it change your life. And he says this, I will come to you. If not, if you don't repent, if you don't remember the love that you had at first and where you've fallen, if you don't repent and do the works that you did at first, if you don't, I will come to you. I'll come back. I'm the priest. I'm walking in the midst of the candlesticks. I made an evaluation. And this is what we call space to repent. I mean, you've heard that word before. You've read that in the Bible. It talks about God gave them a space to repent. Time for the word to come to their heart, for them to think and resonate and deal with it and examine their own conscience. And time for them to be softened and wooed and drawn by the Father and their heart to get right. And he gives space to repent. And sometimes longer than you would even think. And they've thought about it while they're watching TV and they think about it while they're driving down the road and they're dealing with it. And God's dealing with their heart. And he says, I'm giving you space to repent. I've dealt with this issue. I've commanded you. I'll give you space to repent but I'm coming. I'm coming back. I'll be here again soon. And if you don't repent, I'm returning. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is spoken to a whole church in a whole city. Surely, as always, there are pockets of people who are on fire for the Lord and pockets of people who are dead and cold and have no real love for the Lord. This isn't saying that he's going to remove their salvation. 
The point is I've given you this position of influence where people knew about this church. They knew about you as a people. They saw your love for the Lord. They saw your love for one another. They saw your love for the community. And Jesus says, just in the same way, no man lights a light or candle and hides it under a jar or a bushel or hides it under a bed. No, he wants people to see the light and he puts it on a shelf so that it can give light to men and expose things and show them the way that they really are. And Jesus says, I've made you into a lamp. I've given you a position of influence. I've made you a point of reference. People know you. People see the life that you've lived for me. But if you keep being cold, you keep being loveless, if all you have is the form, well, we're doctrinally accurate and we're not living in sin and we're doing technically the right things, but there's no love for him, no commitment, no living like it, then I'll come and I'll remove your lampstand. Can I tell you, I know dozens and dozens and dozens of churches that are just like this. They've not fallen into heresy. They're just as biblically accurate as they were before. They're still having Sunday school. They're still talking about the Lord. They're still doing some religious things. They're still having lots of activities, but there's no real love for the Lord. There's no presence of the Holy Ghost. It's been said, what was said by the Old Testament prophets about the temple. He says, behold, the glory has departed and nobody even knew it. The presence of the Lord that was there, he left. He said, I'm not manifest in this place. I'm not going to be here. And you don't even care because you don't love me. And because you don't love me, you didn't even notice that I wasn't there anymore. And Jesus says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to remove your influence and your platform. You'll no longer be the example that you once were. And I can tell you how many dead churches there are that are just like that. Churches that once had influence. Not, I'm not talking about influence for the sake of we get to be the special people. I'm talking about if this church once loved the Lord, it was once a high priority for them to get to be the people that made Jesus famous. We love him and we want other people to know about him. And isn't this glorious? And Jesus has given us opportunities to tell people how wonderful he is. And he says, if you still care about that at all, I need to let you know that if you don't change, that's not going to happen anymore. Because I'll tell you this, isn't God gracious? Isn't he so gracious? The Lord has used dead churches in the past because he was so merciful. People still get saved there, right? People would be compromised just like Samson, right? A man living in sin, not loving the Lord. And yet he did many miracles for the Lord. God gave him space to repent. But eventually there's a cutoff time. And Jesus says, I'm the priest. I'm walking in the midst of the candlesticks. I've got fresh oil. I've got new wicks. I want to renew you. But there's something that you used to be that you are not anymore. And if you don't repent, that will be taken away. I say to you, this grieves me. It makes me so concerned to say, Lord, we want to be your people. I I can say all these things that I know that the Lord would say to us, here are ways that you're doing well. But none of it matters if we don't love him. None of it matters. The school, the church, the outreach, the fellowships, nothing that we're doing. If we don't have a love for the Lord, none of it matters. And so I'll just say to you tonight, we need to hear what the Spirit speaks to the churches. Can we ask the Lord to teach us that? That's what he says at the last verse. He who has an ear... 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Specifically, what he's speaking to the churches is, I see you, I'm evaluating you, and I want to show you how you can be more faithful to me. And if we are not listening for that, if we don't have ears to hear, we will lose our opportunity to be used of the Lord. Brother Renee, would you come? Can I tell you what's so dangerous about this? Is it doesn't start as a whole church. It starts with a person here and a person there and a person here and a person there. And the priorities for the things of the Lord grows dim in this one and dim in that one, dim in this one and dim in that one. And the fire goes out and the kindling is lost and all that's left is coal. And you've got just this growing trend of hearts who are not on fire for the Lord anymore. This is why we have such a responsibility to make sure that our life is on fire for the Lord. Because if we are not, we contribute to one another. If you're on fire, you'll catch other people on fire. Amen? Praise God. How many of you, you know what that's like? You light a candle, you have a hurricane, the lights go out, you light one candle. You don't walk around with a match getting your fingers burned, right? You light one candle, you put it out, and then you take that one candle. And you walk around to the others and you set that one on fire. And you set that one on fire. And you set that one on fire. And you set these on fire. And you set these on fire. And you set these on fire. That light will spread. In the same way, if we get used to you being dim, what happens when it gets dark? Your eyes adjust to the darkness, right? You get dim you get dim and you're not paying the price to keep the flame burning and you're not paying the price because it's it's easier to let the fire go out than it is to keep it going right this is why the word of the lord constantly encourages us to encourage one another provoke one another to love and good works because the world is constantly trying to beat us down and wear us down and discourage us from being on fire for the lord because the light is inconvenient right Jesus said that he's the light of the world and he came into the world and men did not like that light because the light exposed the darkness and it showed that their deeds were evil. And so the world doesn't like our light. You know who else doesn't like our light? Sleepy Christians. Sleepy Christians. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, Awake, O sleeper. You've gotten so used to the light going out. You've covered your eyes. It's not convenient for the light to shine anymore. And you just want to be okay in the dark. You just want to be comfortable the way that things are. And you don't want to think about it anymore. Other Christians who are sleepy will say, put out the light. Don't let it be so bright. And then the whole body gets low on the light of the Lord. We can't pretend that we're an island. What we are affects the rest of the body. And if you're not on fire, you're not encouraging your brother to be on fire. Can I tell you what I've seen slip into the church? An attitude of complacency. And it spread from one to another, to another, to another, to another, to another, to another, till that's the whole culture. It's like the sin of Achan, one man, one man who brought in something that didn't belong in the people of God. 
And all of a sudden, the power of God wasn't there anymore. And Joshua had to go to the Lord and say, what, what's going on, Lord? Why are you doing this? Why, why didn't you show up and do what needs to be done? Because I know if I let this one thing go unchecked, it'll spread to the rest of the people. We've got to deal with that one thing. And so tonight, I encourage you to deal with your heart, to deal with God, to let Jesus deal with you. And if you've never been on fire and you don't know him, tonight's the night to say, Lord, set a fire in my heart. Let me be born again. Let me see Jesus. Let me be on fire with a love for the Lord. And if you see that the light is going out, go to him and say, Lord, come and cut away the old wick. Come and refill the oil and let me be a light again for the glory of the Lord. I ask you tonight if you'll bow your head and pray with me and ask the Lord to deal with you this morning, this evening. Lord, we ask you to come. You're speaking, Lord. Just because we don't hear you doesn't mean you're not speaking. We got to ask you for ears to hear. That you would give us the ability to hear. Lord, you're speaking. Let us hear what you're saying to the church. Let us hear what you're dealing with us about. Let us not be blinded and naive and deaf so that we avoid the warnings of God. How many Christians have covered their ears? and run and said, I don't want to hear that. It's inconvenient and I I don't know what to do about it and I can't change the way that I am and it just all seems so complicated and so don't trouble me. Don't trouble me with these words. Don't trouble me with this truth. Don't trouble me with this introspection and looking at my own life. I don't have time. Let me just run the way that I'm running. They've run headlong into the ditch and gotten stuck. Let us hear today. Let us know today what is the word of the Lord. And help us, Lord, to remember where we came from and to repent and to love you again and to do the works at first. Have your way in us tonight. Seek the Lord, saints, and let him minister to your heart.